Well, do take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 26. This is a, a revisit to this chapter. We looked at it last time. And last time we looked at the speech uh, as a whole, its impact on those who were present. We looked at some of the company that was there, King Agrippa and his sister who were part of the audience, uh, Festus who was the governor and so on. We looked at the speech as a whole. But I want this evening to revisit the speech and to look at a section that I deliberately omitted last time. And those of you who were here and didn't notice that I'd omitted a section, shame on you. Uh, report to me afterwards and I'll give you some work to do uh, uh, as punishment, exercise. So we're coming back to that this evening and, and uh, I hope as we go on you'll, you'll pick up what it is that we're looking at. So Jesus, when he was looking into the future, Luke's already recorded this in his first volume, what we call Luke chapter 21. As he's looking into the future, he said something to his disciples that was both sobering and encouraging. Let me read to you what he said. They, they, referring to authorities, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony or to bear witness. So there's a sobering aspect and the sobering aspect is that although the cause of Jesus Christ will ultimately at the end of the day triumph and it will triumph. Book of Revelation is in the Bible to tell you the Lamb wins in the end. But though that cause is to triumph ultimately, and that the whole universe, the whole universe will be caught up in the triumph of Jesus in the end because He is alive and He is sovereign and He is building His church. In the short term, in the in-between time between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return, there will definitely be persecution, difficulties, tribulation, trial. In fact, we call it the Great Tribulation, not because of its intensity, but because of its length. It will last the entire period of time from Jesus' return to heaven and His return to earth at the end of history. That's the sobering aspect. But the encouraging aspect of this is that God intends that the persecution and imprisonments and the, the tribulation and the trials will in fact be a strategic opportunity for witness to the gospel of Jesus. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. Imprisonment, persecution might interrupt your evangelistic strategy, but it will not interrupt God's evangelistic strategy. That's the lesson. And when you come to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you see how much of Paul's witness to Christ doesn't go according to plan. We, we know that Paul, we know that Paul is a master planner. He's, he is a brilliant man. 
He's brilliant not just in the sense of the scholar who is brilliant but has no social skills. Not that I know of any people like that present. He's not like that. He is brilliant in the sense of a scholar. He is a master scholar, but he is brilliant organizationally. He's brilliant. He's, that's very unusual to get those two things together. Not only that, but he's socially skilled as well. And Paul has strategies. You can't read the end of Romans, for example, chapter 15, and, and you can't read the book of Acts without seeing that Paul is working according to a pattern. If you read Acts and uh, you see in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, for example, in Isaiah, how Isaiah talks about the Gentile nations being reached with the Gospel, and he mentions the names of some of these great nations or these great areas that will be reached for the Gospel. And you look at the places that Paul goes to in Turkey, what is now Turkey, in Asia Minor then, uh, a Roman province, and you see the places that he goes to, and you take those and you superimpose it on what Isaiah talks about, you see that Paul is visiting all of the places that Isaiah said the gospel would go to in the end. He has a strategy. And when he collects money from those places to take back to Jerusalem, to support the church there in the midst of famine and trouble and trial. He takes the money from these places because Isaiah the prophet speaks about the wealth of these nations coming to Jerusalem in order to sustain the people there. He has a strategy. And God sometimes breaks into his strategy. Jesus said, they will deliver you up to prisons, you take you before governors and kings, and that will be a time for witness. In other words, even when you haven't planned for it, God is going to use it as an opportunity to witness to his name, even when you haven't planned. So for example, our text today is from Paul's testimony to King Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26. How did it happen that this obscure Jewish Christian missionary has an audience with the king of Palestine? How does that happen? It wasn't, God's, it wasn't Paul's plan. For two years, by the time we read this, for two years he has been in prison on false charges in Caesarea. Two years. You don't plan when you're doing your life strategy as the route you want to take. You don't plan for two years in jail. And Paul hadn't planned for that either. But listen to this. During those two years in jail, Paul has been able to give his testimony. Not his personal testimony. He's been able to talk about the work of Jesus to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the highest court in Judaism, just like Jesus said he would. During those two years, there have been plots against his life. He was arrested. He was then put in protective custody because the Jews wanted to kill him. And he was moved to Caesarea to the coast where the governor had his palace and he was kept there. And there he had the opportunity to speak to Felix, who was a Roman governor. What was it Jesus said? You'll be taken before governors. So he's, he's taken before the Sanhedrin. He speaks to Felix, the governor 
of the Roman governor in Caesarea. After two years in prison, he's brought before the Roman governor Festus, who is Felix's replacement, and he is able to speak to him. And now Festus has set it up that he is able to speak now to King Agrippa II, one of the Herods, and he's able to stand and give testimony to him. So the Jew, sole Jewish Sanhedrin, three of the highest political officials in Palestine, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, all hear the gospel. Why? Because Paul has been arrested and imprisoned on false charges. And we know even more than Acts tells us. We know that while he was in prison there in Caesarea, he's busy writing letters. They're the letters we read in our New Testament, like Philippians and so on. These letters were written at that time. In other words, God had gospel purposes for the setbacks in Paul's life. Now I wonder, I wonder if you're sitting here today and you think, as you look at your life, that you've had some kind of setback. You've had a two-year setback in your life. A detour that you hadn't planned in your life. Some big shift or change that didn't fit into the plan that you had in your head for your life. I wonder if that's happened to you. It's happened to me. In fact, in some ways, I, I have to say, in some ways, I think, that, that my detour lasted nearly 30 years. Honestly, I, I crossed the Atlantic when I was just a bright young thing, about 25, and thought this was it. I was going to the pond. And we went to Canada and we stayed there and I kind of hoped that I'd be able to progress. And Paul Jones, I hope you're not listening, from Canada to the United States. But then I guess it's okay because he did the same. That, that, was, that was my plan in my head. I don't think I ever told it to my wife. <laughs> but that was my plan in my head. And then instead of moving south here, staying here, we went back to Britain. And there were times back there I thought, where is this little plan I had in my head? You know, is, I always thought that the Lord was kind of opening this up for me. This was, that this was his purpose for me. And it never came to pass. And I was nearly in my grave. Oh, well, that's exaggerating a little bit. Before I got back here again. But so the detours can take. But while I was in that detour, you see, God opened up a university mission opportunity for me so that I was able to visit most of the universities in the United Kingdom and in, in Europe to have an evangelistic ministry there that I wouldn't have had probably if I stayed in Canada. So God used that detour and perhaps you feel as if you are in the midst, by the way when you're in the detour you don't feel, you just feel miserable, you just feel you feel as if you've lost your way, you don't, you don't, you don't have, you know, I can talk about this now that I'm here in this place. But it took a long while to get from there to here. And when you're in it, when you're in it, you don't see what's going on. And what I'm saying to you is, when the Lord says to his disciples, prison, persecution, detour, but that will be your time for testimony. Realize in the detour there is a purpose. It is a gospel purpose. Whatever it is, wherever it is you find yourself right now, 
It is God's intention to use you. Well, let's come back to Paul's speech to Agrippa. We looked at that in greater detail last time, so I just want to focus in on the bit that I missed this time. Jesus appears to Saul as he was on the road to Damascus. And what the apostle now is saying, now is Paul, is saying to King Agrippa is a number of things, quite straightforward. First of all, Christ the King revealed himself to the apostle. Christ the King. There was a revelation. There was this blinding light brighter than the sun in its strength. What light? What light is greater than the sun in its strength? I, I, I've kind of got light in my head here because I'm miserable in the darkness of up this place here. And long for the day somebody will get the message that I want backlighting here, which is what you do in this kind of space. That's me, that's me done my advert. That needs to get done and it needs to be done soon. That's back to the point. What light is what light is because I can't see and you can't see and the people on the webcast can't see and it's time we could see. Uh, and it would make you feel a bit brighter in the dullness of these evening services. It would. It would brighten you all up and you'd be happier looking. And you'd be able to see that there is actually people out there. Okay. So what brightness is brighter than the sun in its strength? Answer, the glory of God is brighter than the sun in its strength. And Paul saw the glory of God. God appeared to him. And there's more. First words of Jesus were, verse 16, get up on your feet, stand up on your feet. That was exactly the same command that God gave to Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament, when Ezekiel saw the brightness of the glory of God and he fell face down when he saw the glory of God. God said to Ezekiel, I'm going to quote here what God said to Ezekiel, son of man, stand up on your feet. I am sending you to the Israelites. Paul God said to Paul, Jesus said to Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles. God said to Ezekiel, I am sending you to the Israelites. You must speak my words to them. Here is Jesus explaining the purpose of the revelation. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, servant and witness. Those two words used here, in a sense, bracket the whole of Luke's work. Because he has begun his work back in Luke chapter 1, talking about writing a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers or servants of the word that was delivered to them. So what Luke is saying is, Paul belongs to those people who were witnesses and servants, eyewitnesses and servants, that is, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, and servants of the word of God delivered to them. But he's saying more than that. Not only is Jesus, does Jesus stand among those people who were witnesses of these things. He saw the, the risen Jesus and was a witness to that. 
But what Luke is telling us is that Jesus' call, sorry, that Paul's call by Jesus is distinctive in that his call more closely resembles the call of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other Old Testament prophets. Because his ministry is going to have similar weight to their ministry. He's called by name twice. Saul, Saul, just as Moses was called by name twice. Samuel was called by name twice. He's commanded to stand on his feet as Ezekiel was commanded to stand on his feet. He is promised that he will be rescued from harm by those to whom he will be sent, just as the Lord promised Jeremiah that he would be with him and rescue him from harm. And he has this distinctive ministry. Do you notice? He has this distinctive ministry in that he will be an instrument of the will of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, offering, basically being an assistant, an assistant to the risen Lord, an instrument of his will, giving faithful, sacrificial service to believers and unbelievers in Jesus' name in face of opposition and persecution and deprivation. And as a witness, that's a servant. As a witness, he stands beside all those other apostles as an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. A witness, notice the language Jesus uses, a witness of what you have seen. But also a witness to what you will see. For there will be further revelations from Jesus. Further manifestations of Jesus' power to be given to Paul. There will be new depths of truth that will be unveiled to the eyes of this man which he will pass on to us. And everything, everything, do you notice in the context, everything that he passes on to us can be tested against what has already been revealed by the prophets and Moses. You see, he says in verse 22, I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what was what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This was not new truth. This was old truth illuminated by the Spirit of God. He was commissioned to be a servant and a witness. He is commissioned in terms of an apostle and a prophet. There's nobody today in the church, nobody today in the church, that combines those two elements in themselves, that they are apostles and prophets. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation has been laid. The rest of us build on that foundation. Where is that foundation? It's in our New Testament. It is the truth that was revealed to the apostles and prophets like Paul. He had a revelation from Christ the King. Second, his task is to open the eyes of unbelievers. Look at this. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, that word sanctified there is used in a covenantal and corporate sense. It has to do with uh, people who have been set apart by God. God has put a fence around them and said, these are my people. It is an objective sanctification. Sometimes we use the word sanctification in a subjective sense. We're thinking about being made holy, of growing in holiness, growing in righteousness, and so on. But the Bible often uses the word, perhaps primarily uses the word, in an objective sense of people or things that are set apart for the exclusive use of God himself. So, for example, in chapter 20, verse 32, Paul indicates that the word of grace that he preached would give to these people an inheritance among those who are sanctified, that is, set apart. God has put them to one side and said, these are mine. When Paul is writing the Corinthians, they're not a very good lot. This Corinthian church is a bit of a ragbag church. It's, it's, not, you know, it's not your favorite church. It's your church from hell, to be honest. But even writing to the Corinthian church, Paul can write about these saints there. He can say about them that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for the forgiveness of sins. Set apart to have faith in Christ as Lord. That's the, the big goal. So Paul goes then armed with the Word of God, and this Word of God is a creative Word of God, and he goes out specifically to address the issue of unbelief and its effects, to open their eyes. See, this is the real fundamental problem we face. The, the real issue that we face as the church in engaging the world is not is not that if we use simple language, if we use more illustrations, if you had a funnier minister, if you had, or a trendier minister, or you had, you know, the, the most trendy and, and wonderful technical means of communication, that somehow or other that would make it easier to reach people who are outside of Christ or unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean we've got to make it harder for them. It doesn't mean we've got to make it more difficult for them. But the fundamental problem, you see, is this. The God of this age, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. That's the problem. Spiritual blindness. And Jesus says to Paul, I'm sending you out because I want to heal that blindness. That's the goal of evangelism. And we go out with what? We go out with the Word of God, the Word of Jesus. Let me tell you what the Word of Jesus does. Jesus says to a blind man, see. Jesus says to a deaf man, hear. Jesus says to a lame man, walk. Jesus says to a dead man, Lazarus, come out. And he comes. Jesus' word, this word, this word that we preach, this word is a creative, life-giving word. 
We go out with this word. And the Holy Spirit is pleased to take this word of our testimony and use it as the means by which we break the barriers down and the word of God opens eyes. And people move. They see. Look, this is, look how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. It is God. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God said, let there be light. Let me tell you this, we go out. We go out with the word of God. We speak it indiscriminately to all who will hear. And God in his mercy attends our frail, human, fragile witness whenever we have the opportunity. Our witness as a congregation of God's people week by week. I expect, I expect, I hope you expect as you pray that as I'm preaching the word of God and as you're nodding your head in agreement with that word and as we are united together as a congregation in proclaiming this word to the world, I expect that there will be those who along with the speaking of the word of God will hear the voice of God saying, let there be light. Let there be light. That's what we pray for. That's what we pray for. Paul says that Jesus had told him, I send you out to open their eyes. He couldn't open it himself, you see, but he's a vehicle, an instrument that God uses. Why do their eyes need open? Well, so that they, this is the third thing, so that they would turn. Unbelievers turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Light, do you notice? Light, which has been my subject earlier. My little, my little side dissertation there, just to kind of keep you awake. Light is important in Paul's testimony. The illumination of Paul on that Damascus road when he saw this blinding light from heaven. That was important not just because it actually happened. There were other people there, they saw it. Everybody saw it. That was an objective revelation of God. It wasn't just a psychological experience in Paul. It wasn't just a moment of illumination. You know, people talk about having a moment of illumination. Penny drops, suddenly they see something they didn't see before. That wasn't what it was. This was an objective reality. The light shone, everybody saw it. They were terrified. It was objectively true. But that light that was objectively true was also a powerful, powerful symbol of this new calling of Paul. The Lord, who in Isaiah said he would open blind eyes and bring people from darkness to light. This God, who'd said that in Isaiah 42 and in 49, was going to spread the light of salvation through Paul because he spoke of and he spoke for one other and other Christ who rose from the dead to proclaim light both to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. Paul's gospel, he tells us, is comprehensive in its benefits. It releases us from spiritual ignorance. But it also frees us from the oppressive 
tyranny of our greatest enemy, Satan. And Satan's great hold on us, Satan's great power over us, is the power of our sin. You see, just think of a moment. What do we mean when we talk about the devil? What kind of creature is he? Well, the Bible introduces him right at the very beginning of the Bible story. Without giving us a lot of details about him, he walks onto the stage as a serpent. And what does the serpent do? He is a deceiver right from the very beginning. What happens to Eve? She is deceived. Adam, he sins. He knows what he's doing. He sins in rebellion against God. But Eve is deceived. The devil deceives her, lies to her, and she buys his lie. Every false doctrine, all false teaching, every false prophet, every religion, other than that revealed by God in Christ in Scripture, is a lie. Every philosophy, every speculation, everything that turns the attention of men and women away from the things of God is a lie. It is the work of Satan who deceives, who blinds the minds of unbelievers. It's a reality. He's a liar and a deceiver. He is an accuser, the Bible says. He accuses us. God. He points out to God every time you fall, every time you sin, every time you think something you shouldn't think, every time your attitude is wrong. He's there. He's jumping down on that. He wants to point that out to God. He wants to accuse you before God. Day and night, he accuses you, accuses you, accuses you. Because he hates you. The power of Satan. Not only that, but he accuses you to other people. About things you didn't really do, but look as if you might have done. He spreads lies about you, or he encourages other people to think badly of you. And... For those of us who are sensitive, he accuses you to you. He brings up to you the stuff that you've done that's wrong, that's already been pardoned and forgiven, that you've confessed and been forgiven for. He brings it up again and again and again and again and again, and he makes you miserable. He kind of puts you on mute. You can't say anything because you feel so, much, so guilty. He puts you on pause and you can't do anything because you feel so guilty. He is an accuser. And what the Lord Jesus does in the gospel, let me tell you this, is he tells you the truth and brings you out of ignorance into spiritual understanding. And he silences the accuser before the throne of God above. I have a strong, certain plea, a great high priest whose name is love ever lives and pleads for me. Satan tempts me to despair tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. He silences the devil. He deals with the power of Satan to bring us to God. His, this is the, the great message that the apostle preached to the nation. Well, let's wind it up. This spiritual blindness, this darkness, 
is something that Satan encourages, and this is the position of men and women. Do you know, let me just say, make a comment here. It's kind of a, I know you're not used to me doing this, but it's a kind of an unrelated comment. But we'll throw it in anyway, okay? Very often as Christians, we are tempted to listen to the arguments and the way in which the world reasons. Take, for example, the whole area of scientific inquiry. We have a great respect. I have a great respect for scientific inquiry. But we must never for one minute think that sin has not infected and affected the mind's powers of reason outside of Christ. If we believe in sin, sin has affected every part of us, even our powers of reasoning, ability to philosophize, these things. The way the mind works is as affected by sin. You can't think for one minute that somehow or other reason escaped the fall. Hmm. So we've got to be careful that we guide our lives not by our own reason, within, within limits of course, God has given us reason, as long as our reason is submitted to the revelation of God, the revelation that God gives comes first, and our reason is informed by revelation, and then in prayerful submission to God, applied to all the areas of life in which we're engaged. Mind illuminated. And do you see the effects? Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. That is carved out by faith. The believing community. Those set apart for God. That's the church. These two things. What does the gospel take us to? It takes us to the forgiveness of my sins personally. And it takes me into the fellowship of the forgiven. The fellowship of those who've been set apart by God and who believe. Set apart, sanctified by faith in me. In other words, the gospel always gets you into church. Always gets you into church. That's the, that's the effect of it. Puts you among the people of God. You can't go it alone. You can't do it on, in your own steam. You have to be part of the body of Christ. So what Paul is being, what Paul is saying to this king, I want you to see, is he's actually giving a, a whole word of testimony about what the gospel is all about, and he's doing it as he's done it to the Sanhedrin, as he's done it to Felix, as he's done it to Festus. Now he's saying it to King Agrippa. His two years in prison have not been wasted time. He has been given amazing opportunities. And he's taken them. He's snatched them. And here he is summarizing this great gospel, what Christ aims to do through you and me when we testify to the truth. And in our day, the church, the church in America, has been given this great task of testifying to the truth to an increasingly secularized and anti-Christian society. Speaking for Jesus. That's our job. And it doesn't really matter whether people listen or not. That's God's job. Our job is to bear witness to the truth 
as it is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that there is such a thing as objective truth that has been revealed to us. We thank you that it has been revealed in Christ, and we pray that in your grace the light would come on in our heads if we haven't seen that light before, that it would make sense to us. It would capture not only our minds, but through our minds, capture our hearts, and then lead to our whole will, our whole person, committing ourselves wholly to, to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would enfold us among the fellowship of the forgiven, that we find among your people, people who are honest about their weaknesses, people who are able to confess their sin, people who don't need to pretend they're perfect, people who know that they're forgiven, people who know that they are at the same time justified and sinful, that God is not finished with them yet, but that they're moving inextricably towards that final destination when we will waken in His likeness. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.